Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Now, that might be a hyperbolic statement. However, I do believe it's in the top three of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Oftentimes, you've heard verses like in the book of Psalms, um, the verse everybody loves to quote halfway and doesn't fill the rest of the verse that... um, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You have people that quote that halfway. They misquote it. They don't finish the verse. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. So if you just have that half of that verse quoted, um, it's a very depressing verse to quote. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. It seems hopeless. It seems helpless. It just seems this is my lot in life. Nothing you can do about it. God's just bringing me through it so he can uh, you know, chastise me or teach me something special. I don't know. But if you quote the rest of the verse, it actually shows you that there's victory in that verse. Yes, there are confrontations in life. Yes, there are challenges in life, but the Lord delivers us out of them all. Another misquoted verse is in um, John chapter 16 and verse 33. The scripture says, in this life there will be tribulation and trials. People end the verse there. They don't finish the verse. They just talk about trials and tribulation. How many of you know in this life you're going to have trial and tribulation? How many of you know life's going to be hard down here? But they don't finish the verse. The verse goes on to say um, that but I, Jesus speaking, take take heart or be of good courage for I have overcome this world. And in the Amplified Version, it says, and I've deprived the world of any ability to ever harm or afflict hurt on you. So yes, there's going to be trials, there's going to be tribulation, there's going to be challenges, but Jesus said, I've overcome the world and everything that would ever come against you. Matter of fact, if you read in Romans chapter 8, it says that, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall persecution, shall distress, shall nakedness, shall the famine, shall sword, shall peril, shall trouble separate us from God's love? He says, no, in all these things, we have become more than conquerors through him who loved us. So yes, there's going to be trial and tribulation, but the Bible says he overcame and In his overcoming the devil and the world, he gave us power to also overcome so we can always get to the other side and obtain victory in every battle of life. That's another scripture that oftentimes is misquoted and leaves people drained and drowning. Another one people love to misquote, and I think it's in Matthew chapter 6 or Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not. Judge not. Hey, be careful what you're doing. Judge not. Judge not. The Bible says you shouldn't judge. No, it says judge not lest you also be judged because he was, Jesus was rebuking people because they were judging other people about the very things they themselves had indulged in and were indulging in. And they were laying judgment on others and the very things that they were doing. He says, if you have, uh, if you're trying to take the speck out of your brother's eyes, please Clean the plank of wood that's in your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's eye. So he was saying the same measure that you judge others, you're going to be judged with back on yourself. Paul talks about this in the Corinthians, the letter of the Corinthians. He says that, um, or sorry, Romans, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, this is what Paul says. 
He says, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge are practicing the same things. So he says, you're, that's this, the essence of Jesus saying, judge not lest you also be judged. He's saying, when you judge somebody over a thing that you yourself are in love with, you're inexcusable. And don't think you're going to escape judgment. Do not think. So people misquote that. They say, don't judge. No, we should judge with righteous judgment. We should judge with righteous judgment. In the book of Corinthians, Paul talks about, I don't judge those that are in the world. They're sinners. They sin. A fish swims. A bird flies. A sinner sins. Sinners sin. He's like, I can't do anything about judging them. Them, God will judge on that day. However, Paul says, those that are in the church, I take it upon myself to judge them. I judge them. Because, and he judged with righteous judgment. Paul was not sleeping around, committing adultery, and then pointing out people's faults and, and, and problems with their own adultery. He kept himself clean. He said, I keep a firm watch over myself, lest I also be disqualified. He says, I, he says, I judge myself. I keep a firm watch over myself, lest I also come into a place of judgment, and I disqualify myself. But Paul kept himself clean. He said, I die daily. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He kept himself under subjection to the word of God and because of that it actually qualified him to be a rightful judge within the church so that's not uh that that's not the way I mean that's the pe way people quote it judge not but that's not what Jesus intended to do he wasn't saying we should have a judgment free zone in the church he says you should call out sin you should absolutely Paul actually tells Timothy that sin that they're committing in your church he says judge them in the presence of everyone so that they should fear too Paul judged people. He said, I've committed Alexander and some other guy uh, to Satan. I've handed them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. He says, I've judged them in the presence of you all. So judgment is not something to be uh, uh, neglected in the church. It's just to be done with righteous judgment. So that's not the misquoted verse I'm talking about today. That's just a little background of other misquoted verses. But the misquoted, the most, my opinion, one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible that leaves a lot of people wondering is this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good. And that's where people stop. We know that all things work together for good. How many of you know all things are working together for our good? They don't finish the verse. And it leaves a lot of people hurting. And it leaves a lot of people confused and perplexed as to why things are not turning around in their situation. We know that all things work together for good. That's where people stop. But if you continue on and finish the verse, Romans 8.28 says, To those who, two things, one Love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. All things we know, Paul's saying we know this is an this is a thing that we all know. He wasn't even um he wasn't even doubting their knowledge on this thing. He's saying, we know, we know. He wasn't saying, and by the way, I need to inform you of this. He's saying, we all know this. We know that God works all things together. For good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. There's a lot of people that quote that and they totally detach themselves from any sense of responsibility that they have in the fulfillment of what God promises in this verse. 
They say all things work together for good. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what you, who you are, what you do, where you're at, where you're going, what you're touching, where you're, what you're looking at. Doesn't matter how your life is. All things are going to work together for good. In the end, God's going to make it pan out for your good and in your favor. But that is the most perverted version in quoting that verse that you can ever, you can ever come up with. Because it leaves people with a, an, this, this sense of like, there's nothing I have to do on my end. There's nothing I need to do. He's going to get it all done. And I've said this before and I say this again. Any faith that seeks to make God totally responsible for the outcome of your life is an irresponsible faith. I'm going to say that again. Any faith that seeks to make God totally responsible for the outcome of your life is an irresponsible faith. And it is, it is heading you for destruction and disaster. Any faith that makes God totally responsible. You know, that's the problem with the Corinthian church. They were indulged in sin because they thought to themselves, our spirits are saved. God did all the work. It is finished. Jesus said on the cross, our bodies are disposable. Let's get whatever we want done with our bodies. Let's join ourselves to prostitutes. Let's smoke up. Let's do whatever we want to do because our spirits are saved. God's going to make all things work together for us in our spirit. Our bodies are disposable. He actually rebukes them. He says, no, don't you understand? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what you do with your body matters. Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he says, you guys will be judged or your judgment will be in reflection to your works. He says that whose ends, these people are spiraling down for destruction and their end shall be according to their works. So what you do in life how you respond to the commands of Scripture absolutely will determine the outcome of your life because faith is uh, faith faith lies with corresponding action. Faith has corresponding action. Faith is dependent upon corresponding action. I wrote this before in my notes. I said the more you distance yourself from the practicality of the Bible and it's practical instruction, the more you distance yourself from the practicality of Scripture and its instructions, the further you distance yourself from God's power and God's blessing. I'm going to say that again. The more you distance yourself from the practicality of Scripture and its instructions, the more you'll distance yourself from God's power and God's blessing in your life. And that's the, a lot of people that misquote this scripture, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. When they just quote it partially and half, halfway through and don't finish the verse, that's that, that mindset that they adapt or that they adopt is that God's going to get it done. If God said it, he's sovereign, he'll get it done. There's nothing I can do to add to it. There's nothing I can do to subtract to it. That is rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Because if that were the case, why does Paul say that in a race we all run, but we should run to obtain the prize? And he says those that are athletes, they're disciplined in things pertaining to temporal, temporal life, like a crown, a wreath, a gold medal, a civil medal, whatever. They're disciplined to obtain a gold medal. That's a temporary prize. But we are disciplined because we're striving to obtain an eternal medal. And he says... 
He actually says this in finishing that scripture. He says, I discipline myself. I bring it into subject. I bring my body and my actions and my choices and my decisions in subjection to the will of God and the will of the Spirit, lest after I have preached to others, I also should be disqualified. Paul said, I'm one who can be disqualified. Even if I'm an apostle, even if I've spent my life preaching the gospel, I can still be disqualified if I don't line up my action with the instruction of Scripture. So Paul's not saying all things work together for good no matter what we do. Even Paul held himself accountable to the end of that scripture. According to those, and these are the two pillars, two key pillars that must be set in place for God to work all things together for good for you. These are two inadvertible, unavoidable pillars that have to be in position if God's going to work all things together for your good. No matter what you find yourself in, no matter what challenge, predicament, problem, situation that you might be in right now, unless these two things are in order, you can pray, you can fast, you can give, you can try and throw money at God, you can go to church. If these two things are not in order, then the foundation for victory is not set and you're bound for collapse. And that's what I want to get into today. This is going to help you. So help me get this word out to a lot of people. Share this broadcast. Uh, share this broadcast. And uh, let's get these numbers up so more people can be helped. Number one, key pillar, Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Number one pillar that has to be in state is your love for God. You have to be a lover of God. And there's a lot of people that um, think they love God, but they don't actually know what it means to love God. Love is not just a vocal confession. Love is action. John the Apostle says, Brethren, let us not just love in word, but in action and in truth. And so I'm going to show you actionable ways that you can love God. Practical ways that demonstrate your love for God. Before I do that, you need to understand this thing. 1 John 4, 19. Your love for God will reflect your understanding of his love for you. Your love for God will be a reflection and directly proportionate to your understanding or revelation of his love for you. If you don't think or if you have this twisted, perverted version of God's love for you, you're going to have a twisted, perverted version of love for God. Your love for God. You could only love God in proportion to the revelation of his love for you. Why do I say that? 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment and he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Verse 19, get this in your spirit. Pay special attention to verse 19. 1 John 4, 19. We love God because he first loved us. Now, if you skip with me to Ephesians chapter three. So John is saying, we could only love God because we've had a revelation that God loves us. So if someone does not believe, and if you read on in 1 John, it says we have known and believed 
the love that God has for us. So he says we have revelation knowledge of God's love for us, and we also believe that revelation knowledge of God's love for us. There's a lot of people who can sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But how many actually believe that God loves them? It's one thing to say God loves me. It's another thing to actually believe God loves me. There's a lot of Christians who say God loves them, but the way that they pray shows, shows us that they actually do not really believe God loves them because they pray in like this paralyzing, crippling fear that God is some tyrannical governor that at the slightest of errors in how you pray or what you do, he's going to strike you down and smite you. There's some people that say, we know God, I, I know God loves me, but the way that they talk about him to others it shows that there's actually a lack of revelation of the love of God for their lives. You know, I love my child. I want the best for my kid. I want him to succeed in life. I want him to be a Holy Ghost soul winner. I want him to be strong. I don't want him to ever be sick. I don't want him ever to be poor. I don't want him to ever have depression or sorrow in his heart. Now understand this. If I, being evil in comparison to God's goodness, want those things for my son and my daughter and my future children, how much more? Do you suppose God desires those things for us? Yet, in people's speech and conversation, they say God loves them. They say they believe the love of God. But they think that God's behind their affliction. God's behind their problems. God's behind the storm. That God's some sadistic, twisted being in the heavens that's using you like a hamster in his experiment. They don't, they they might say God loves them, but they might, they have a, 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 a rough version of the love of God, a perverted, distorted, diabolically polluted version of God's love. Because if my love for my child is for them to prosper, be in good health, and succeed, and, and, and be the best that they could ever be with the hand of God on their life, how much more do you suppose God's love for you is amplified and intensified in those things? God doesn't want you sick. If you think God wants you to stay sick, then you don't have a revelation of the, God, of the love of God for your life. If you think God wants you poor, then you don't have the revelation of God's love for your life. If you think God wants you bound to sin and addiction, then you don't have a revelation of the love of God for your life. You may have a revelation of a version of a polluted form of God's love, but that's not the authentic, genuine love of God that he has for you. And until, you know... John, we read it, that the love of God casts out all fear. Fear involves torment. When people are tormented and when people are fearful of God and they're, they're um, paralyzed with a fear and crippled with the idea that God's the, the one whose hand is crippling them and holding them down and suppressing them and holding back their advancement and withholding good when you have that, the Bible says you, you have not experienced the perfect love of God because the perfect love of God will cast out the fear of all those things. The perfect, if you have the fear of God making you sick or God making you poor or God keeping you in problems and trials, and, then you have not had a revelation of the love of God because the Bible says perfect love casteth out all fear. And he says fear involves torment. 
People are afraid of God because they think he's the one tormenting them. But the love of God, when it's shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit, and I say by the Holy Spirit because it can only come by revelation. It can't come by any other way. And when that love shines on your heart, you realize God's not tormenting me, nor does he have any desire to torment me. God has a desire to bless me. God has a desire to help me. He is a refuge and a help. He is a defender and a protector. He is a provider and a healer he is not the opposite of those things he is a very present help in time of trouble he's a refuge he's a pavilion the bible says how often i've desired to hide you under the shadow of my wings from the problems in life he doesn't want to throw you and cast you in to turbulent waters he wants to keep you and protect you the bible says i will look to my mountains from whence cometh my help my help comes from the lord who made heaven and earth he'll not allow the sun to smite me by day the Problems that come by day. He said, I won't allow them to smite you. I won't allow the moon, the moon to smite you by night. No, I will keep you and I won't sleep or slumber. I will keep you. I'll protect you. Our guards are coming in and you're going out from this time forth and forever. He said, I'll cause your enemies who come in before you to be defeated before your face. They'll come in one way, but they'll be scattered seven ways. God is not interested in tormenting you. It's the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come to love on you to give you life and life more abundantly when you understand this and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to this then boom then you'll understand the depths of God's love for you that's why Ephesians 3 is saying here Ephesians 3 14 for this reason I bow you know the first three chapters of Ephesians Paul is literally telling the Ephesian church this is everything God did for you at the cross this is everything Jesus got for you. He obtained an inheritance for you. He seated you in heavenly places. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He has predestined you to adoption by Christ in love. The Bible says he, he has sealed you with the Holy Ghost of promise. He has given you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He brought you near who were far off by the blood of Jesus. He no longer calls you strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. He goes through all these things he says now we have this bold confident access to the father by the spirit in the name of jesus he goes through all these things that have been delivered to us in christ he says you are god's workmanship created in christ jesus for good things that ha god has prepared for you beforehand that you should walk in and enjoy and then he goes on to say now for this reason so he's saying, I've just told you everything God wants you to have. I've told you all about the inheritance. I've tried to do everything I can by writing this epistle to you to open up your eyes to see the surpassing greatness of God's power towards you. But even if you saw it, even if you believe God is all-powerful, even if you understand all these, these doctrinal things and the inheritance and all that, if you don't understand this, Paul says it ain't going to do you no good. You're not going to be filled to the fullness of God. He says, for this reason, I'm now bowing my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named and he said this is what I'm praying for the Ephesians church not only to see what is accessible to them by God but I want you to know it's God's good pleasure to give it to you because he loves you how do we know that he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ verse 17 listen to this Paul's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. See, if you don't understand the love of God, you're not going to be rooted and you're not going to be grounded. 
You're going to be unsettled. You're going to be one of those tossed to and fro types of Christians. You're going to be one of those ups and down Christians. One day you feel, because you felt a good service, you came out of Sunday service, man, I know God loves me. I can run through a troop. I can leap over a wall. But then, because you're not rooted and grounded in the understanding of God's surpassing love for you, the next day you wake up, you feel a little groggy, and you're going to, oh man, I don't feel saved. Does God really love me? I don't know. Is God hurting me? Is God trying to, is God trying to show me something? Is God, is God trying to hurt hurt me? Is God trying to keep me in this state of despair? Why, God, are you doing this to me? Why, God, are, why, God? Oh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why are you, uh, why have you forsaken me? You understand that you don't have a legal right to ever pray that prayer? There's a lot of people that pray that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have no right to pray that prayer. You have no right to ever let those words come out of your mouth. Because when Psalm 22, when David penned those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't talking about himself. They were prophetic psalms referring to what Jesus would suffer at the cross, the total abandonment of the Father for the first time in all of eternity. Remember, Jesus did not come into existence when he was conceived in marriage. Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the pre-existent one. He's the preeminent one. He's the eternal one. He's always been the one who was and is and is to come. So when Jesus through all, all of eternity had been in the presence of the Father and the Father had set his gaze on him and he had his gaze on the Father. On that cross, because of sin being laid on Jesus, he hung there and he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, God had turned his eyes away from Jesus for the very first time in all of eternity so that he can look on us and show us his favor and make us accepted in Christ Jesus. So the only one who ever ever had the right to pray that prayer was Jesus hanging on that cross who truly was forsaken by the Father in that moment. That's why darkness covered the entire earth. It was like noonday and there was darkness. It was nighttime at noonday because God is light and he turned his eyes away from planet earth. He turned his eye away from Jesus. For the very first time, Jesus suffered loneliness on that cross. He suffered total abandonment because God cannot behold sin and for the first time, sin was laid on Jesus and God cannot behold sin and so God could not look at Jesus in that moment in that moment so the only person who ever had the right to pray that was Jesus but Jesus did that for us it, the Bible says in Isaiah 53 it pleased God to crush Jesus knowing the joy set before him the many that would be justified by the knowledge of what Christ did at the cross. And that's you and that's me. We're righteous now. God's not forsaken us. God's not turned a blind eye to us. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to us. God has, has not left us, abandoned us, or totally left us stranded. God has his, the Bible says you are the apple of his eye. He's totally fixated on you. He says, I know you're rising up and you're setting down. Psalm 139, you want to talk about the love of God? It says... How intimately acquainted is God in all of my ways? The Bible says, even if I made my bed in Sheol, even if I made my bed in Sheol, even there he is with me. Even if I took the morning wings out and went to the uttermost depths of the sea, the Lord would guide me there and he would lead me there. The Bible says he knows my thoughts from afar. He knows my rising up and my sitting down. He is intimately acquainted with all my ways. In the book of Psalms, in chapter 40, verse 5, 
This is what the psalmist writes, and I love this. And in Psalm 139, he says it again. But Psalm 40, it says, Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done for me, and your thoughts towards me cannot be recounted in order. If I should declare and speak of them, they're more than can be numbered. Then you skip to Psalm 139, and the psalmist writes these words. He writes... Psalm 139, verse 17, how precious are your thoughts towards me, God. How great is the sum of them all. If I should count them, they're more than the number than the sand. When I'm awake, I'm still with you. So the psalmist is saying, his eyes always on me. I'm always on his mind. So quit saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, you're on his mind at all times. He said, if my eye is on the sparrow, then how much more do you think my eyes on you? You're much more valuable than many sparrows. Quit sorrowing and sulking in this diabolical deception that you've bought and believed that God is, has abandoned you and God has, has left you stranded that God has turned himself away from you. He hasn't done that. He has not done that. There's no human being that God has turned away from. Nobody. We're still in the day of his favor, still in the day of his mercy. Even if you've screwed up and you've sinned, there's time to repent. And in repentance, you can draw near to God and God will draw near to you. So this is what Paul prays. Paul prays that you may be rooted and grounded in that love, that understanding that Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says that you may be able to comprehend, understand with all the saints. So he's talking about comprehending this, understanding this, having a full revelation of this. What is the width, the length, the depth, and the height? To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul says... The understanding of this love, it surpasses knowledge. You can't read it in a book. You can read about the cross. There's many people who know about Jesus dying on a cross. But he says, you can't just receive it in your noggin. It's a love that you have to experience. It's a love that you have to encounter. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, if you've had this rejection syndrome, if you've had people reject you in life and it's just put this false perspective of God in your life that now you think God is just as bad as that parent that wanted nothing to do with you. You might have had earthly parents that have abandoned you and earthly parents that have forsaken you, but God is not like them. The Bible says he has engraved your name on the palm of his hand. He said, can a nursing mother forget her child? Even if that were possible, I, the Lord, will never forget and I, the Lord, will never forsake you. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that the love of God, like a flood, will inundate you your heart today and clear out any any area where you have rejection anything that's in you that that uh, is hard and callous towards people because you're just that you've just been told your entire life you know don't trust anybody don't trust anybody uh, nobody's out for your good everybody's out to hurt you everybody maybe you've had that ingrained in you and now you think that about God I pray the love of God just totally annihilates exterminate like an exterminator coming in and fumigating your home I pray the love of God fumigates your heart from all sense of rejection all sense of hatred all that hatred you've carried in your heart the poison of bitterness in the name of Jesus Christ it gets cleared out of you today in Jesus mighty name in Jesus name all right, so we understand now the love of God. And, I, you know, I was going to read it, but I won't. But Luke 7 talks about uh, um, Jesus going to a Pharisee's house. 
And the Pharisee, while they were eating, began to complain because a woman who was a prostitute came and had an alabaster flask of costly fragrant oil, poured it on Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair and her tears. And the Pharisee said, if this man were truly a prophet, if this man were truly a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman is doing this, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said this to her. Uh, Jesus said this to the, the Pharisee. He said, the king had two people that owed him debt. One owed him 500 denarii, and one owed him $50. One owed him $500,000, and one owed him $5,000. And he said, they both came to him, and the king forgave them both. He said, which of you... Which of the two do you think will love the king more? And he said, the one who was forgiven a greater debt. He said, yes. He said, this woman, though she sinned much, she's been forgiven of much, and she loves much. You have been forgiven of little, and so you love little. Now, many have taken this to seem, uh, to, 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 to be like Jesus was saying that that Pharisee had less sin in his heart and that prostitute had more sin in her heart. And so that's why the love was different. And you can, you know, when someone has a big testimony, they love more. When someone has a little testimony, they love less. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, this woman understands the depravity of what sin has done for her, done to her, the poison, how it ravaged her home, how it totally destroyed everything it touched in her life. She understands. She has felt the depravity of sin. You haven't. Because she has felt it, she recognizes. She recognized the need of a savior. She recognized the need of, of, of what I was about to do. It's not that the Pharisee needed less to be forgiven him. He just had not recognized the depravity sin had put him in. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just one sin, no matter how small or how big it is, just one sin cuts you off from God. And that's the reason Jesus was pinned to that tree, for the sins of the world. That woman simply understood her own depravity and recognized the need for Jesus. She loved much because she understood God's love in sending Jesus. He loved little because he still had not had that revelation. That's why he treated Jesus with contempt. He says, I came in the house. You didn't wipe my feet with oil, which was customary at the time. You haven't washed my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You gave me no greeting. You treated me with contempt because you, don't, you haven't recognized your need for me yet. She has. So Jesus was not saying when you have a lot of sin and you're forgiven much, then you'll love much. But people who, you know, they grew up in church. They weren't necessarily into clubbing and drinking and all that. They're going to love a little more. No, a little less. You know, he was saying, when you understand that the very least of your sins pinned Jesus to that tree, and that we were all destined for hell, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. And in all of that, God demonstrated his love when he sent Jesus to die a sinner's death so that we can inherit and obtain the king's life. When you understand that, you're going to love much. So all that to say, your love for God will be directly proportionate to your understanding of his love for you. The Pharisee didn't love Jesus much because he didn't understand what sin had done to him and what sin was costing God. The woman, she loved much, poured out everything because she had this one revelation and that's all the revelation you need is that God so loved the world that no matter what we had done, he sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him, nothing more than just believe on him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. So that's what all that, that's like an introduction. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. If you're going to love God, and I'm going to go through three things 
of what it means to love God. If you're going to do these things, it's going to come from a place of understanding of what God has done for us and how much He's loved us. You know, even in reference to how much God loves us, there's never a number given. It doesn't say, and God loves us this amount. It never says, it never gives a measure or an amount. It just says, how great is the love of God for us? Or God being rich in mercy and in love towards us. And God so loved the world. So loved. How great is His love? Even the writers of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, could not even quantify the love of God for us. Because it's beyond. We just read it. Even if we should count up the thoughts that He has for us, it's more than can be numbered. The Bible says the very hairs on your head are counted. Now think of this. You lose, science shows you lose hair every single day. And you regenerate hair every single day. And God is taking tallies of every hair on your head. The ones you've lost, He recounts. Every single day, He's recounting how many hairs are on your head. No matter how many you've lost or how many you've gained, God has a fresh tally of how many hairs are on your head. That, some people think God hates them, and, but you have an, actually a case to build just from that scripture that God is kind of weirdly obsessed and overly in love with you. Obsessed with you. He says, I know you're sitting down and I know you're rising up. Man, I pray, once again, I pray. Any feeling of God doesn't love me, I feel like God's mad at me or God's rejected me, all those feelings, I pray like a toilet being flushed will be flushed out of your life forever. In Jesus' mighty name, I curse every lying spirit that would try to sow those thoughts into your mind. In the name of Jesus. So what does it mean to love God? I wrote down three things. Number one, you keep his commandments. John chapter 14 and verse 21. John 14, 21. What does it mean to love God? You know, I love, God knows I love him in my heart. Yeah, you're still sleeping with your boyfriend and you're still cheating on your taxes and you're still, you know, cursing and watching things on Netflix that you shouldn't watch. You don't love, you don't love God. When you love God, you'll hate what is evil and you'll love what is good. When you love God, you'll keep his commandments. That's not my word. That's what Jesus said. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So what does that tell us? He who has my commandments and does not keep them is the one who does not love me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now you skip over the first John chapter 2. John, who's the apostle of love. That's what they call him. First John chapter 2. Now by this we know that we know him intimate knowledge of him or love him if we keep his commandments he who says i know him or i love him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever whoever keeps his word truly the love of god is made perfect in him and by this we know that we are in him he who says he abides in him ought also to walk even as he walked so john is saying if you say you love god but you don't keep his commandments you're a liar And the truth is not in you. He says, by this we know that we are in him when we keep his word. For truly the love of God is in you. And he who says he abides in him, whoever says he loves him, should also walk even as he walked. You can't say you love God and, and have a lifestyle that shows you love sin at the same time. You can't serve two masters. You either are loyal to Jesus and loyal to his word or you'll be loyal to sin and be loyal to Satan you're either a slave to Christ or a slave to Satan. Your master is either God or your master is money and Satan. 
You can't be loyal to two. Let me read something. Actually, I won't read it for the sake of time. But in Joshua chapter 7, you see, matter of fact, I'll read it. I'll read certain scriptures from the book of Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Listen to this. So this, this whole purpose of this broadcast is all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So you can't say all things work together for good if you don't love God. And we just concluded that loving God is keeping his commandments. So we can also interchangeably use loving God with keeping his commandments. So all things work together for good to those who keep his commandments. So if you don't keep his commandments, then nothing will work together for your good. And we see this in Joshua chapter 7. Achan had sin. Israel had sin. And Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. And he said, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Joshua was saying, hey, I've read the first chapter of my book. You said no man will stand before us all the days of our life. You said that every place on which the sole of our foot treads on will be land you've given to us. You gave, you gave us a promise of victory after victory. We just got humiliated at a little town called Ai. Everybody's going to hear about it and they're going to say, God has left Israel and his hand's no longer on the camp of Israel. So he actually tears his clothes and he said, God, didn't you say all things are going to work together for our good? What does God reply with? Verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why are you lying on your face? I love how God speaks. Why are you lying on your face? Why are you wasting time praying to me about why things aren't working? Israel has sinned. And they've transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. When you live a lifestyle of sin, it is a demonstration that you have no love and no respect for God. I mean a lifestyle. I don't mean you sinned yesterday, you made a mistake. You can make a mistake, pick yourself up. As long as you hate that thing and you've repented, you've turned towards God, you say, I'm never doing that again. That's loving God. But if you're in a cycle of sin where you're just, you refuse, you refuse to back down from that sin, from that, that sinful habit. You refuse to turn away from it. You can't, you can't say, it's like, for example, if, you know, if I was, I'm, in, I'm married, I'm in covenant with my wife in marriage. If I just go out every night and sleep with other women, my wife's not going to believe that I love her. Hey, where were you tonight? Oh, I was around with this lady who went for a date. You're dating, you're married to me. Why are you dating other people? When you say you love God, but you're, you can't love God and be married to Christ and date sin. The Bible calls it, uh, uh, you adulterers and adulteresses. You have loved this world and you've become an enemy to me. Just in James chapter 4. You adulterers and adulteresses. You have loved this world and you've become an enemy to me. Friendship with this world. You want to date the world and be married to Christ? It don't work that way. You've got to dump this world and marry Christ. There's, Jesus doesn't have fiancés. Jesus doesn't have girlfriends. Jesus has a bride. The bride of Christ. And until you... Until you become someone like David, I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. I'll set nothing, anything that is wicked before me, I cut it off from my sight. Until you become like that, you, you're still under the camp of how these Israelites were. It says, you've sinned and have transgressed my covenant. 
which I commanded you. For you've taken of the accursed things. You've polluted your life. You've committed adultery. You've stolen and deceived. They've put it in their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. All things work together for good. Amen. No, not until you cut sin out of your life. Get rid of sin or sin's going to get rid of you and there's nothing God will do about it. Can't say all things work together for good while committing harlotry spiritually. All things work together for good. Amen. Not until you... Get out of that house that you're living, with, living in with your boyfriend that's not your husband. All things work together for good, amen. Not until you stop watching porn. Not until you stop doing, you know, drinking every day. Not until you cut those things out. Not, all things will not work together for the good of those that are committed to a lifestyle of sin. Matter of fact, Hebrews says that if you sin willfully after you've come to the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice that can atone for your sin. There's no longer. There's, what, G, what Hebrews was saying is that the blood of Jesus covers repented of sin. And if you won't repent of sin, the blood of Jesus will do you no good. You're actually insulting the spirit of grace. Therefore the children of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they've become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. God said, I won't help you, and nothing will work together for your good. You've doomed yourself to destruction because you don't keep my commandments. You can't claim that all things are working together for your good while you're flashing the finger to God through your conduct. God isn't your naive parent who can be manipulated. You can't manipulate God. You can't, you can't hide things from God, and you can't manipulate God. There's a lot of parents that are naive, their, their daughters or their sons can successfully like lasso them in that yeah you know they can get them to buy that car even though you know they didn't make good on their end of the promise they can do all those things but God's not like that God is a covenant keeping God you study how many times in the Bible it says if you will then I will it's a lot there's over like 400 promises like that if you will then I will so that leads us to believe that if I won't, then he won't. If I won't, then he won't. In Zechariah 7.13, it says, because I have called, God's called us all to holiness. And because I have called and you would not heed me, you will also call and I won't heed you. I won't heed you. Ezekiel says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You cannot sow the seed of sin and reap a harvest of blessing. The Bible says the way of the sinner will be hard. And Romans 8.28 does not circumvent that, nor does it uh, eliminate the fact that the way of the sinner is hard. Romans 8.28, all things work together for, for good to those who love God. How do you love God? Number one, you keep his commandments. John 14.21, he that hears my word and keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. There's no getting around that. Number two, prayer. When you love God, you're going to pray to him. The Bible says men ought always to pray and never to lose heart. Paul said, pray always in the spirit. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says that you should pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop praying. When you love God, you're going to pray every day. You will pray every day. Now, I'm not saying you missed yesterday. You must not love God. I'm saying you're going to make a, 
an, in, an intentional effort to communicate with God every day. Could you imagine? I love my wife, but I only see her once a month. No. I love my wife. I speak to her every single day. Even when I'm on the road and she doesn't come with me, I speak to her every single day. I communicate with her. Communication is a key essential part of a strong, solid relationship built on love. And if there's no communication between you and God, then, uh, then I, I doubt your sincere love for him. When you love someone, you want to talk to them. When you don't talk to them, I doubt the sincerity of your love. Paul said in Philippians 3, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Paul said everything in this life is rubbish. That I may know him. That I may know him. He says I press towards God. I press. Prayer is pressing towards God. Prayer is pressing towards God. Paul's heart was I want to know him. And where do you find, where do you come to know him? By his word and by prayer. Prayer brings revelation of Christ. You start to, when you get in his presence, you start to know who, how he's like, what he's like, his character. So number two, how do you love God? Through prayer. Number three, how do you love God? Through loyalty. Isaiah 1, 3 to 7, God says, The ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib. But Israel does not know me and my people don't consider me. So God was rebuking them because they were not loyal. They're not loyal. They were idolatrous. They put other gods before them. Do you put TV before God? Do you put social media before God? Do you spend eight hours on social media scrolling through someone else's life and not minding any business concerning you and God and your, your communication with Him? Putting God first every single day. Do you seek first the kingdom of God or do you seek other things? And then oftentimes you'll throw in the kingdom of God. God is either going to be your all in all or nothing at all. He won't take second place. He doesn't take the passenger seat in any person's life. He takes, he takes the driver's seat and the driver's seat alone. The Bible says, don't be idolatrous as some of them were. And they fell in the wilderness. That was the problem with Israel. They had no loyalty to God. He brought them out of Egypt with silver and gold, none weak or feeble amongst all their tribe. Within three weeks, they had built a and fashioned a, a golden calf and were worshiping a creation rather than the creator. They had no loyalty. Be like Job who had loyalty. Job was loyal to God. Job, no matter what was going on in life, he said, I will not curse God. My worship is before God. All things work together for Job at the end of his life. Do you remember the end of the book of Job? By the end of everything, he had double everything he had ever lost. Job was qualified for Romans 28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Job proved his love for God. Despite what he was seeing, he refused to curse God and he refused to blame God for anything. And at the end of his life, or at the end of the book, the Bible says the Lord blessed him. And he lived a long, full life, full of good days. He lived 140 years after that ordeal. And scholars believe that he was already 80 years old when all that happened. So that would be 140 years plus 80. That's 200, 240 years. 240 years. 220 years, sorry. 
220 years old, Job lived because he was loyal. All things, in the end, everything panned out. Joseph, Joseph refused to sin against God. He was an, a slave in Egypt. He could have easily have slept with Potiphar's wife in spite towards God. God, I've served you my whole life. Here I am scrubbing floors for some Egyptian master. A lot of good that's brought me to. You know what? I'm going to sleep with her tomorrow. Next time she comes and asks me, I'm going to sleep. She, he could have easily have done that. What did he do? Far be it that I should sin against the Lord in doing this wicked thing. He was loyal to God no matter what he was going through. And what happened? All things worked together for Joseph. Even though he got thrown in prison, a couple of years later, he becomes prime minister of all of Egypt. The most honored and respected person of all of Egypt. You look at Daniel. Daniel def defiled himself not with the things of Babylon. He didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. He put God first. Even if it meant temporary discomfort. When they said don't pray, what did Daniel do? Oh, don't pray? Open up my windows. And he prayed three times that day, as was his custom. And he prayed louder than he had ever prayed before. And then when they were going to throw the three Hebrew boys in the, in the fiery furnace, what was their, what was their response? Hey, let, let this be known to you, Nebuchadnezzar. We will never bow to you. Even if you throw us in the burning furnace, we'll never bow to you. Our God is able. Our God is willing. Even if he didn't, we'll never bow to you. They expressed their love to God. They qualified for Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God. They loved God. Daniel loved God. That's why the lions, everything, even him going in to the lion's den, God worked it out so that Daniel got a promotion by the end of it. And the people that had persecuted and were Daniel's enemies got, got struck down by God himself. And they're the ones that got thrown into the lion's den. God turned everything for their favor, in their favor, for their good. What the enemy meant for evil, God flipped the switch on the enemy and he turned it for their good. Whatever the devil, I'm telling you, I pray as the love of God is in you and you're called according to his purpose, as you persevere and you endure and you don't back down despite the lion's den and despite the burning fiery furnace, whatever the enemy meant to pull you down and to demote you is actually going to cause a severe divine promotion to come your way in Jesus' mighty name. Everything the enemy meant to throw you down will actually set you up for accelerated, aggressive, divine promotion for your life. Whatever the enemy meant for your casting down will just be for your lifting up. Just like Haman. Haman struck, stretched his hand against the Israelis, the Israelites in Esther's day. But Mordecai stood for God and was loyal to God. And Esther, the same thing. And what Haman, the weapon that Haman used to try and kill the Jews was actually used against him. And the Jews and Mordecai and Esther, it all resulted. What Haman had strategized to kill and annihilate the Jewish people in that day was actually something that set up for the Jewish people and for Esther and for Mordecai to go down in history. And it led to their promotion. Not only the promotion, but like I said, it, it, they're now they're etched down in history so that thousands of years later, we're still talking about Esther and what she did. Her honor is, un, is you can't erase her honor. You can't erase her honor. That'll be your story in Jesus' name. And then 
Number, so that was number three. So the three ways you love God, keep his commandments, you pray, and you're loyal. You put him first in everything. Put him first in the tithe, in the offering. Some of you need to hear this in terms of giving. Giving is an expression of love. Paul said, I'm testing the sincerity of your love through this ministry of giving. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm, I'm testing the sincerity of your love through your giving. So sincere love will have giving. Do you put God first in the area of your finances? David said, because of my affections for the house, for the Lord my God, I have given above and beyond towards the building of the house of God. Because of my affection for the Lord my God, I have given above and beyond to the establishment and the building of, of uh, the house of God, the temple in his day. When you love, you give. God so loved the world that he gave his, his only begotten son. When you love someone, you give to that person. You give in time and you can give in, in, in gifts and in your resources. Solomon loved the Lord that he offered up a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord. Hallelujah. So those are the ways you love God. Number, number two. So the two key pillars were you love God and you're called according to his purpose. Number two, called according to his purpose. And I finish with this. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. What does it mean to be called according to his purpose? It means you have your hand to the plow in fulfilling God's plan for your life. It means that you're keeping to the path of God's calling and God's purposes for your life. You're not just doing whatever you want to do. You're doing what God's called you to do. Abraham, everything worked together for good for Abraham's life. Genesis 20, even when he was in Abimelech's house, and Abimelech was going to take Sarah for his own pleasure. God showed up to Abimelech in a dream that night and said, if you touch her, I'll kill you. Abraham enjoyed divine protection because he was called according to God's purpose and he followed that calling. He followed that calling. That's why he became indestructible. That's why he became untouchable. Abraham was untouchable everywhere he went. No matter who tried to stretch out their hand to afflict Abraham, their hand got cut off. That Abrahamic blessing was on Joseph. His brothers tried to throw him in, prison, in, 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 a, in a ditch and then sold him into slavery into Egypt. That Abrahamic blessing, because Joseph continued and persevered with the call of God on his life, they, they couldn't hurt, hurt him. They couldn't block his rise to the throne. They could not deny his rise to the throne. The dream that God had given Joseph was realized because Joseph never deviated and never got distracted from the main thing. He kept to the call of God. Paul always had things work together for his good. You look in Acts chapter 27, he's shipwrecked. Acts 28, they get to the island called Malta. He's shipwrecked, he's a prisoner, he's cold, he's got nothing, he's in shackles and in chains. And yet by the end of that chapter, the Bible says, not even the end, within 13 verses, the Bible says that the natives had showered Paul and all his companions with high level blessings as they left the island. All things work together for his good. He showed up to the island, a prisoner, wrongfully enchained. By the time he left the island, even the centurion that had imprisoned him showed him high favor, and the natives of that island gave him high-level blessings, showered him with great gifts. He left full-handed. Paul, in prison, he's writing to the Philippians, in prison, and he's saying, hey, 
I have received your offering. I am full. I am abounding. I have, I have more than enough. In prison, God made all things work together. So don't think God, for him to work everything together for your good, that every, every single, single thing has to line up in your natural mind. God made all things work together for good to Paul in prison. In prison, he's telling the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And he's saying I, I, he's overjoyed. He talks about how much joy he has. God can make all things work together for your good, no matter where you're at right now. Don't mind where you're at. Mind where you're going. Don't talk about where you're at now. Talk about where you're going. God's going to work all. Why? Why is God going to work all things together for my good? Because I love God. I live in holiness. I keep myself clean. And two, I'm following the plan of God. When you're a man or a woman on, that has subscribed to the terms and conditions of the fulfillment of heaven's assignment for your life, and you're keeping to that path, you become indestructible. You become invincible. You become unstoppable and unbreakable you receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken you can't be shaken that's Paul's story wherever he went he said I have obtained help from God and I'm standing unto this day he said I have obtained help from God and I stand unto this day you will never fall again in Jesus mighty name every attempt of the devil to derail you and get you down it fails today in Jesus name every plan of the enemy miscarries and every Everything that he would try to work out in your life, it gets demolished today in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Every attempt of the devil to make you fall fails today. You obtain help from God today. All things are beginning. The process of all things working together for your good begins today. In Jesus' mighty name. God's helping you from today onward. You will have a story not a sob story, a wonderful miracle testimony story that you'll have to, to tell everyone. Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26, as long as he kept to the plan of God, God made him to prosper in everything, in everything that he did. You know, only when Jonah came off the call of God for his life did he get thrown into that storm and ultimately in the belly of the fish. But when he got redirected, and he finally surrendered himself over to the will of God. The belly of the fish, he got thrown, he got vomited out of the fish. And all things worked together for Jonah. He fulfilled the plan of God for his life. He didn't get killed by the Ninevites. He finished strong. You will finish strong in Jesus' name. Even if you've deviated, even if you've been distracted, even if you've come off course, I see the hand of God divinely realigning you today in Jesus' name. I see the hand of God giving you divine realignment today. You're coming back on track. You have a calling. Some of you, you don't even believe that. You have a calling. You are called according to his purpose. The call of God is not to be determined. You don't come up with it yourself. It's to be discovered. You discover it. In discovering the plan of God and operating within the confine of that plan, that plan and that call, that's when everything, everything will pan out. That's when everything works together. So who can say all things work together for good? Those who love God and those who operate and, and walk in the, the call of God according to his purpose. 
If you don't love God and you don't walk in the call of God according to his purpose, then you can't say everything's going to work together for your good. Nothing will work together for your good. But in loving God and in following the call of God according to his purpose, you can boldly say, and I, I want you to write that, type that out in the comment section. You can boldly proclaim it. All things are working together for my good. I want you to write that in the comment section as a statement of faith. All things are working together for my good. Because I love God and I'm called according to his purpose. Jesus was walking in the call of God for his life. And even when they picked up stones to stone him, they couldn't do it. He was invincible. He just kept on moving. That same invincibility is going to come on you today. The devil can't stop a man that's on the go for God. A man, a human, a government cannot put the brakes on someone who's running the race that is set before them in fulfilling heaven's assignment for their life. Every one of those efforts will be in vain. You will reach the other side in Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' name. Now, in concluding this broadcast, I want to ask you a question. I talked about loving God and keeping to holiness and what it means to love God, to keep His commandments. If you're watching today and you've deviated from that, your, your love for God has grown cold. Ephesians, Paul commends them because he says, you guys have a love for God that's gone out to all the world. Everybody is hearing of your love towards one another. He commended the Ephesians church because they had a hot, fiery, bright love for God. But then Re Revelation chapter 2 comes along and Jesus rebukes the Ephesians church because he says, your love has grown cold. You've become lukewarm. You've left your first love. It says, return to that first love. If you're here today, you've left your first love. You've deviated. You've gotten distracted. Maybe something knocked the wind out of your sail. Knocked the wind out of you. And you're, you've been meaning to come back to God and you've been meaning to rededicate and reconsecrate. Some of you, maybe you've said, you know, January 1st, New Year's rev resolution. I'm going to live for God. Don't wait for January 1st for two reasons. Number one, God wants to help you today so you don't have to postpone till January 1st. God working all things together for your good. And number two, reason is that we don't, we're not promised January 1st. Jesus can come back today. He can come back December 31st. And you've been waiting for January 1st. Life's but a vapor. The trumpet could sound at any time and Jesus can return. And he's coming back only for those who love him. The Bible says, those who love him, this is in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If anyone draws back, backslides, lets his love go cold. But we are not those who draw back to, those, to perdition, but we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. We're not those that are drawing back our love for God. As the day of the Lord approaches, our love for God should burn brighter and brighter. Don't be like the five foolish virgins who let their fire go out. Don't let your love for God grow dim. Let it burn bright. Rekindle that love today. Repent. Do the things you did at first. God will put a grace on you. That the love you used to have, you used to want to win souls. You used to want to tell everybody about Jesus. You used to want to read your Bible. You used to want to pray. All that. As you turn back to God, God turns back to you. As you draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you. And He'll give you a grace to do all those things. And He'll send one angel to light a match. Toss it on your, 
your heart's altar and put a burning passion back into your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, lukewarmness is going to leave you today. Indifference is going to leave you today. A burning passion to love God, keep His commandments, and serve His purposes is coming alive in you. But I want you to do this with me. If you have never prayed a prayer of repentance and faith towards God, I want you to do that now. If you have, but you're under the category of those I just talked about, your love for God has grown dim and grown cold, and you want to rekindle it today. And you're saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to serve you with all my might. I'm going your way. I'm through being a friend of this world. I'm through being lukewarm and indifferent and apathetic. I'm going to, I'm going to be on on fire for God. I'm going to rekindle my zeal for God. I want you to pray this prayer with me from the bottom of your heart. Say this with me. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. For I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. And I confess Jesus is my Lord. I will live for you all of my life. Fill me with your spirit. Rekindle a love for God in my heart. From today, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. I am saved. I am forgiven. I am healed. I am whole. All things are working together for my good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to go to salvationnow.ca. The first link that pops up on my website is I just got saved. I want you to click that link and I want you to fill out the form. I want to get something to you free of charge as a way of saying welcome to the family of God. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.